Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome once again. I'm sure most of you have heard at one time or another, and maybe frequently, that the Bible is just an old relic book written thousands of years ago by some pre-scientific folks, and it really doesn't have any relationship to the reality of things as we know them today. We're much smarter than those folks were. Well, for a little while, let's just set the Bible aside, and let's ask the question, how well does our mainstream, current, scientific, modern understanding of things really match what we observe if we simply look around us. And we've tried that out looking at things like the information content of life, for example, and seen that the mainstream approach has some very serious issues explaining what we observe. Well, what I want to look at today is perhaps a bit simpler and more obvious. How about just the landscapes around you? Just things in geology? Well, before we talk about any specific elements in geology, we need to talk a little bit about how geologists think, how they used to think, and what has changed. If you go back 400 years, 350 years, and then further on back, the majority of folks took the biblical account as history and treated the Genesis flood as a real space-time historical event. And so when they looked at areas with large amounts of sedimentary deposition, for example, they would often conclude that this was likely the result of the flood. Well, that type of thinking began to change very dramatically. And the idea was that by getting away from that old Genesis flood account, we could figure out the real history of these geologic structures. In fact, William Morris Davis stated it this way, The emancipation of geology from the doctrine of catastrophism was a necessary step before progress could be made towards an understanding of the lands. And it was expected that applying this approach to things would allow an understanding of all the landforms that we see certainly by the end of the past century. It needs to be noted also that the motivation for the main practitioners who pushed the direction of the thinking of geology toward immense amounts of time were involved with a deliberate rejection of the scriptural account. Dr. Terry Mortensen has written a great deal about this in earning his history of geology PhD, and his book, The Great Turning Point, is an excellent source for information on these events. But just understand that ever since that point in time, say 300 years ago, the thinking approach has been slow and gradual. Well, let's take a look at how well that approach works when we look at actual objects out there. There was a large undersea volcanic eruption just off Iceland back in 1963. And the volcanic mountain that was developed became an island named Surtsey. I recall reading about Surtsey in National Geographic when I was just a child. And there are several interesting articles about it at creation.com. So here's a brand new island that pops up out of the ocean in front of our eyes. And geologists, like most scientists being inquisitive, they quickly went to take a look at it. One wrote, on Surtsey... Only a few months sufficed for a landscape to be created that was so varied and mature that it was almost beyond belief. Well, what was beyond belief? It's the fact that there were wide sandy beaches, gravel banks, impressive cliffs, soft undulating land, faultscapes, gullies and channels, and, quote, boulders worn by the surf, some of which were almost round 
on an abrasion platform cut into the cliff. And all of this was despite the, quote, extreme youth of the island. The thinking of the geologists was completely coupled to the slow and gradual paradigm. And the surprises didn't just happen a couple of years after Surtsey showed up, but they continue to be amazed at what they see. In January 2006, an article in New Scientist documented some additional information. Quote, the island has excited geographers who marvel that canyons, gullies, and other land features that typically take tens of thousands or millions of years to form were created in less than a decade. Now, let me interject here. Science is about observing things. They observe the canyons, gullies, and land features that are there now. They also are able, by observation, to say these were created in less than a decade. There has never been any direct observational evidence to prove that structures like these could take tens of thousands or millions of years to form, and yet they say that is typical. Well, it's typical only in their worldview and mindset. It's not typical in the set of observations that science has to work with because it's never been observed. So note carefully the difference between the observation of a structure today, the observation of things actually being formed today, and the presumption, not observed, that they typically take an immense amount of time. Well, it wasn't just the geologists that were surprised at how things occurred at Circe. Biologists also were surprised. Quote, From the first, the speed, ingenuity, and sheer unpredictability of nature's colonization of Circe wrong-footed them. End quote. For example, they expected lichens and mosses to show up first, but that's not what happened. Flowering plants showed up first. Researchers that showed up in 1965, quote, were greeted on the high tide line by the green shoots and pretty white flower of a sea rocket, its roots sunk into the ash and in full bloom, end quote. Lime grass, sea sandwort, cotton grass, and ferns soon followed. It was not until 1967 that mosses arrived, quote, and lichens only limped aboard in 1970, end quote. So the colonization sequence was not at all what was expected by biologists. Well, why do you think they expected mosses and lichens to be the first colonizers? It's because the presumed evolutionary history of the Earth proposes that those are the first greenery to colonize the Earth as it cools down from its alleged molten beginning. So here's an island cooling down from a volcanic eruption, so they expect that to be the sequence in which things occur. Wrong. A biblical worldview doesn't have the same expectations. According to the Bible, all kinds of plants were created together on the third day of the creation week. And furthermore, the earth wasn't cooling down from a molten state. What the biologists saw confused them or surprised them in other ways as well. It didn't match the evolutionary paradigm at all. Quote, there was no complex evolutionary adaptation to the surroundings nor even a replication of ecosystems on neighboring islands. What came, came. Meaning, they had no idea how to explain what they were looking at. It just happened. An article at creation.com comments on this, saying, What came, came, and come it did, to the great surprise of evolutionary biologists, who, despite the lessons they should have learned from the recolonization of Mount St. Helens in the U.S., following its eruption in 1980, 
again, greatly underestimated the innate resilience of the creation to reseed denuded areas. It seems that its Surtsey insects were the first to arrive, just as the first helicopter crews to land in the Mount St. Helens disaster zone reported that flies had preceded them. The first people to set foot on Surtsey in early 1964 were, quote, welcomed by a fly on the shore. And, as at Mount St. Helens, other aerial arrivals included the spiders ballooning through the atmosphere on silken threads. Other insects came to Surtsey by sea, riding on tussocks of grass. Some mites washed up on a floating gatepost. Birds began nesting on Surtsey in 1970, producing chicks just three years after the lava stopped flowing. These early residents were seabirds, such as fulmars and black guillemots, building nests of pebbles and keeping to the cliffs. But in the summer of 1985, a pair of lesser black-backed gulls arrived and constructed a nest of plant materials on the lava flats. They returned the following year with others, and there is now, as of 2007, a permanent gull colony of more than 300 pairs. The birds have contributed to Surtsey's greening. Snow buntings brought the seeds of bog rosemary from Britain in their gizzards, Combined with bird excreta, seeds grow rapidly, and there is now a bright green oasis, quote, spreading from the gull colony. Geese now graze the island's vegetation. The cycle continues. The plants support insects, which attract birds, which bring more plants. Recent arrivals include willow bushes and puffins. According to the Icelandic Institute of Natural History, quote, we now have a fully functioning ecosystem on Surtsey, end quote. So the physical evidence from Surtsey indicates two things. One is, it doesn't require vast amounts of time to produce the geologic structures that they think require those vast amounts of time. And secondly, the notion of the Earth being reseeded post-Genesis flood could happen much more quickly than everyone is told. In fact, it's often claimed that the recovery from the biblical flood, the biological recovery, would be impossible in the short time frame of the Bible, Surtsey proves that's simply not true. We're examining some instances in which mainstream scientific theories fail to explain what we observe around us. We just talked a bit about the island Surtsey that popped up off Iceland in 1963, and showed landscapes and biological recolonization that was totally unexpected and happened much, much faster than predicted by current theories. Okay, well, maybe the island Surtsey is an unusual example. Perhaps there's something very strange about volcanic islands in the middle of the ocean, but that doesn't mean that the standard scientific understandings of how other geological structures form have any problems, does it? Well, let's take a look. Let's define a couple of terms here. Geomorphology. That's a subfield of geology defined as follows. The science that treats the general configuration of the Earth's surface, specifically the study of the classification, description, nature, origin, processes, and development of present landforms and their relationship to underlying structures, and of the history of geologic changes as recorded by these surface features. So geomorphology is supposed to be able to explain how these landforms attained their current structure. A landform is defined as, quote, any physical recognizable form or feature of the Earth's surface 
having a characteristic shape and produced by natural causes. It includes major forms such as plain, plateau, and mountain, and minor forms such as hill, valley, slope, esker, and dune. Notice the phrase right in the middle of that, produced by natural causes. That has been added to the definition of this term in the more modern glossary of geology, but was not in the older dictionary of geological terms. And given that this is supposed to just be a descriptive science, why is that added? This is exactly like the redefinition of science to be purely naturalistic, deliberately to exclude an intelligent designer as being a source for some of the items that we see. And by the way, geomorphology is sometimes referred to as physiography or physical geography. Well, enough for definitions. How well does it work? This issue is discussed by Michael Ord in his recent book, Flood by Design, as well as in numerous articles at creation.com and elsewhere. In discussing the origin of plateaus, Ord writes, the science of geomorphology provides a description of a plateau, giving its height, width, slope, etc., and classifies it in relation to other plateaus. This is the science in the analysis of landforms. But geomorphologists have also attempted to explain the origin of the plateau, as well as other landforms. Such an endeavor will depend upon one's assumptions of the past or one's worldview, which for mainstream geomorphologists has been naturalistic. There is a huge amount of literature on this subject, but these explanations have commonly been failures. Therefore, geomorphologists have mostly given up attempting to explain the origin of landforms since the 1960s and 70s. The origin of landforms in geomorphology is in such disarray that after 200 years, scientists cannot even provide a credible hypothesis for the geomorphology of southeastern England, an area where the science of geomorphology first developed. They've retreated to studying small processes observed today, such as river erosion, weathering, landslides, etc. This modern emphasis is called process geomorphology and focuses on small timescales and areas while ignoring the origin of landforms altogether. Geomorphologists still hope that someday they will be able to understand the origin of landforms by studying all of these observable processes, of course thinking in strict uniformitarian terms. They are confident that a study of tectonics, horizontal or vertical earth movements will eventually enliven, quote, long-standing problems of landscape evolution and rates of landscape change that had been largely ignored in the preceding decades, end quote. So it's admitted by the secular geomorphologists that they've really ignored attempting to explain landforms as a whole and just hope that the small stuff they are looking at will lead up to the large stuff that we observe. To me, this sounds very similar to the notion that microevolution, small changes within a kind, will simply add up to macroevolution. Listen to yesterday's show. There's no evidence at all that that actually works. And in fact, Dr. James Tour, the chemist, who is an expert in synthetic molecule formation, said it doesn't work. He doesn't understand how macroevolution works at all. Well, let's take a look at a couple specific types of landforms. How about mountain ranges? Two Australian geomorphologists, Cliff Oye and Colin Payne, wrote a provocative book called The Origin of Mountains. They admit that plate tectonics, the standard explanation, rarely helps explain mountain formation. Oye and Payne go on to list 20 proposed mechanisms for the uplift of mountains, 
none of which can be demonstrated. By the way, they wrote that book in 2000. So in other words, they do not know why we have mountains. One of the difficulties in explaining mountain ranges is the insufficiency of subsurface data. We don't know enough about what's below them. So this leaves us hanging because without this data, how can you possibly explain mountains? But the bottom line is, mountain ranges are not explained by mainstream geomorphology. Well, what about plateaus or mesas? Those are those flat-topped hills that grace the Earth's surface by the thousands. Explaining their origin should have been simple if uniformitarianism was true. Erosion over millions of years seems, at first glance, a good explanation. But one problem with this assumption is that most of these features retain flat or nearly flat tops. Erosion over millions of years would have dissected and destroyed the plateaus and mesas. The evidence for long periods of erosion is simply missing from the flat tops of these structures. And what gets really interesting is when you observe that the rock beneath some plateaus is made of tilted sedimentary rocks. So you had layers of interspersed hard and soft material creating parallel layers that were then tilted from the horizontal into somewhat of an uplifted position and then eroded across horizontally. As Ord writes, observation shows that whatever formed the surface of the plateau evenly cut against the dip of hard and soft sedimentary layers as if they were of equal hardness. These surfaces are called planation surfaces. No one has observed them forming over any significant area today, yet strangely, they cover hundreds or thousands of square miles. Even more difficult for scientists to explain is the presence of rounded rocks capping their surfaces. Rounded rocks indicate water was involved in eroding and smoothing the surfaces. In some areas, the rounded rocks have traveled hundreds of miles from their source. Present-day rivers, even at flood stage, do not have the power to move these heavy rocks, let alone spread them over such a wide area. Uniformitarian explanations fail to explain the unique features of these plateaus even after two centuries of hypothesizing. For some pictures of these structures, take a look at my website, creationmythormiracle.com, or at some of the articles at creation.com. Just Google planation surfaces. Well, let's do a quick review. The island of Circe popped up out of the ocean due to a volcanic eruption and was very quickly examined closely by geologists. Well, what did they find? Did they see what they expected? Not at all. Instead, what they observed in the landscape and the objects on the beach and the rocks, etc., were items that they would have concluded took a very long time to form if they didn't know that was simply not true. Icelandic geologist Thor Aronson wrote about this when geologists in the spring and summer of 1964 wandered about the island, they found it hard to believe that this was an island whose age was still measured in months, not years. What elsewhere may take thousands of years may be accomplished in Iceland in one century. In Circe, the same development may take a few weeks or even a few days. So let's grab hold of that very important statement. Geologic developments, which could be interpreted elsewhere as taking thousands of years, have been observed to occur in Circe 
in a few weeks or even a few days. What are the implications of that scientific observation? It simply means that when we apply the same interpretive techniques to landscapes where we don't know the actual history and we then conclude ancient ages, that interpretation may be faulty. Thorarenson went on, On Circe, only a few months sufficed for a landscape to be created that was so varied and mature that it was almost beyond belief. That is, beyond belief based upon their basically uniformitarian mindset. They simply don't expect this type of development to occur so rapidly. So just remember, the interpretations of ancient ages can be wrong. That's the fundamental point here. Nobody's ever observed something taking tens of thousands or millions of years to form, but we have observed very similar structures forming in a very short period of time. When you combine this fact with topics we've discussed previously on this show, such as opals being formed in a lab in a very short period of time, just given the correct chemistry, and the fact that mud can settle out of rapidly moving water and does not require absolutely still water for an immense amount of time, and the fact that mudstones that may have been formed from moving water make up the vast majority of the geologic column, all of a sudden, if you don't ignore these facts you have the potential for a very different interpretation of the geology you see around you. And that interpretation removes the millions of years that are forced into it by mainstream science, and it's only the time scale that is claimed to prove the Bible can't be true. Well, the time scale is actually very questionable scientifically. And speaking of things happening faster than expected, let me tell you about a lighthouse on the southwestern point of mainland Australia. In 1895, this lighthouse was built and the stonemasons lived in nearby cottages. A large wooden water wheel and aqueduct were constructed to supply them with fresh water from a natural spring. The flow from the spring turned the wheel, which in turn operated a pump which piped water to the cottages. There are caves in limestone rock in the area, and the water which flows over the wheel has a high mineral content. It didn't take long for the minerals to precipitate out of the water and begin to form limestone. Eventually, the wheel stopped turning and became trapped in rock in just a few short decades. Today, the spring still flows, and the water wheel stands as a testimony to the rapid formation of limestone. Natural formations whose ages are not known may lead some to believe they've taken thousands or even millions of years to form. Given the right chemical environment, the thousands of years since Noah's flood are actually a vast amount of time adequate to explain the sorts of geologic features that we have grown up to believe speak of millions of years. There's some great pictures of this water wheel in a very short article about it titled Frozen in Stone in Just Decades at creation.com. Go take a look at it. It's rather impressive. And you'll see that in a very short time, you can have a massive amount of limestone rock form. The water wheel is almost completely encased in limestone at this point. But we know it was built in 1895. So one final summation. We know that geological structures can form at a variety of rates. That's shown to us very clearly by Surtsey and by artifacts like this water wheel encased in limestone. So there's simply no question that the rates can vary dramatically. Or at any rate, we actually know it can occur quickly. We don't know that large structures can be formed slowly because we have not observed that. And additionally, large-scale landform structures like the plains, 
planation surfaces, etc., show that something occurred in the past that is not the same as what is occurring today. Today's geologic processes are inadequate to explain these large-scale structures, and in fact, as we noted in the early part of this show, most geologists have simply given up even attempting to explain them. What it really shows us is that processes operated in the past that are not operating right now. And that is geologic processes that are affecting the surface of the earth. Well, that's no surprise to someone who believes the Bible, given the fact that a unique one-time event occurred with Noah's flood. And if you simply think about it at all, it would have had enormous visible effect on the surface of the earth, which matches exactly what we actually observe. See creationmythormiracle.com. <laughs>